0: Welcome to episode 23. I'm your host, Mike Avery, and I had the privilege of interviewing Father Charles Kern, professor of theology at Southern Methodist University. I'm not sure why I was graced with such an interview other than strictly divine providence. I was honored and humbled to have spent an hour discussing theology with such a prolific, albeit controversial theologian. In our conversation, we discussed Curran's vocation as a diocesan priest and his initial skepticism towards being a teacher. We then ventured into his experience as a doctoral student in Rome and how his mentors, Joseph Fuchs and Bernard Herring, played a vital role in forming his moral theology. At the heart of the episode, such topics as Humanae Vitae, Curran's investigation by the CDF, and the necessity of dissent in response to the sign of the times all take center stage. To conclude, Kern laments the narrow focus of his scholarship, even admitting to not being radical enough, but takes heart in theology's renewed focus towards those on the margins. As always, thank you so much for taking time to listen to our podcast. Please message us or tweet at us at Theology, and you can leave your comments on the blog. As always, thank you so much for listening. All right, welcome to another Daily Theology Podcast. Our guest today is Charlie Kern, Elizabeth Sherlock University Professor of Human Values. Thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: Good to be with you,
0: Mike. We're in a lovely office, which is just really great, uh, at SMU, and I've never been here before, so I had a little trouble finding parking, but I, as a millennial, we we make things work.
1: <laughs> well, you're not a basketball coach or a football coach. That's why you couldn't get a parking spot.
0: Uh, uh- in Texas, the uh, coaches make a lot of money. One of the things uh, we like to ask, the first thing on the, on the podcast, is what, what was the path that led you to theology?
1: Well, my path was you know, quite different from people's paths in the last 40 years, but it was probably quite similar to people who went into this field many years ago. I actually was in the seminary studying for the priesthood for the Diocese of Rochester, New York, I had done my theology in Rome and then I got a letter from my bishop saying we want you to teach moral theology and we want you to go back to Rome and get a a doctorate in theology in order to teach in the seminary in Rochester. So as a good, dutiful seminarian, I saluted and said yes.
0: As a a seminarian, you just wanted to be a diocesan priest, right? That's correct. Mm -hmm. So your your vocation in theology was kind of given to you. That's
1: correct. Mm
0: At the time, was it was it something you were stressed out about, or:
1: No, I wasn't stressed out about it as I recall, but I mean I, I wasn't primarily interested in teaching, to be honest with you, but I mean, I'm very glad that I've been teaching for 55 years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what, what was the refrain from teaching? what was it just something?: No,
1: I just thought the pastoral ministry made more sense to me, kind mm-hmm. of thing.
0: As a as a student, I was I was reading about you were very successful as a student, especially at the seminary. You went to seminary for high school and then two years of college, right. right? And you were the valedictorian, right? Yeah, right. Do you do you remember your speech and what you said?
1: Oh, I came across it the other. Yeah, it was one of those <laughs> usual, you know, onwards and upwards, the new <laughs> things and better things, and that that's about what it was, as <laughs> I recall. The irony about that, by the way, was that the. Uh, the speaker at the graduation was Father Francis Connell mm-hmm. from Catholic University, who years later became my great adversary.
0: <laughs> so your your roots with the Catholic University of America started very young. With growing up in Rochester, New York, and kind of having that Catholic background. Do you feel like that was a huge influence for you to join the priesthood in the early 60s? Oh, I think
1: I think it obviously was. Yet, on the other hand, we didn't live in a Catholic ghetto. I mean, my... Best friends in grammar school. The best friend was a, uh, a Christian Scientist.
0: <laughs> oh, okay.
1: Yeah, it was not a Catholic ghetto kind of. Did thing. you
0: just go to Catholic schools? Or That's did you... right. Okay. So you you're going to the, to Rome into the Greg and all that. Well, tell us a little bit about your experience of kind of studying theology, kind of before Vatican II and what that meant.
1: Well, it was a uh, an an opening up, even at the at the Gregorian at the time. Quite frankly. Most of the faculty were people who had been teaching there for years. So I went there originally in 1955. Most of the faculty I had had been teaching a long time. In the area of moral theology, one of the professors was uh, Franz Hirt, a German, who had started teaching there in 1932, actually. And Hirt was... uh, uh, the uh, the other professor in moral theology was an American named Ed Healy. And uh, that one time in class, Healy, in his crazy American Latin, because he taught in Latin, made the comment I, I told this opinion, and I hear I disagree with Father Hurt, even though he writes frequently under the pseudonym of Pius XII. Uh <laughs> That everybody knew that Hurt wrote most of what Pius Twelfth
0: wrote in the area of moral theology. <laughs> So you kind of had like a ghost writer of something. That's kind of, right. Mm-hmm. Like a ghost theologian. you wouldn't say like that. So most of your classes are in Latin. They were all in mind. Latin. <laughs> as a, as now, a But at
1: the Gregorian, the first person who opened me up a bit was Father Joseph Fuchs. He had yes. just started teaching there. And in fact, years later, this was about 68, I, he came to the States. And I said, now listen, if if i if 67 was i said if you dot the i's and cross the t's in that talk you gave you've changed your teaching on contraception yeah that might be charlie i might but let me tell you i'd remember when you were as rigid as a telephone pole <laughs> is this
0: is this how like you said you you went to rome and you you came back less i guess to use a a word that may not be best conservative, or like you, you kind of felt like you saw the human side. Well,
1: yeah, I'd put conservative in a different context, but in Rome, you obviously saw the human side of the church. <laughs> I mean, in fact, when I started even teaching in the seminary in Rochester in 1961, uh, I used to talk about the five marks of the church. I mean, these were the old days. The four marks were one, holy,
0: catholic, and apostolic, and I added sinful. <laughs> so i used to teach high school and we used to do the four we have to do the four marks sure again. all right and then if i if i would have said that people like i think my students would have like just revolted and uh, like right uh. i i read that and you were doing this in what like 40 50 years 50 years ago i i mean did this this go well that you had this fifth mark of sinful
1: well i i think so now in, interestingly enough you know the the, the most fascinating years you have are your first years teaching. You know, you're a, you're a page fascinating, and
0: fascinating a, is charitable. Yeah, yeah,
1: Well, you're a page <laughs> and a half ahead of the students. But I was teaching in this very conservative seminary, uh, and I, you know, had already, you know, opened up quite a bit and uh, wanted to give a much broader presentation to moral theology. The, the moral theology textbooks were always about what was sinful and how big a sin. And I said, you know, that's not what moral theology is about. I got this from my teacher, Bernard Herring, especially. Herring taught at the Alphonsianum in Rome. And Herring and I became quite close. And and from him, I got this notion that moral theology had to be quite different from what it was.
0: When I had a class with Jim Keenan at uh, Boston College, he talked about these theologians you speak of, and he also talked about the moral manuals. I, I kind of find it to be a little bit disconnected about these moral manuals and what they were. Do you, could you speak about?
1: Sure. The moral manuals were basically the textbooks that were used in teaching moral theology and Catholic theologates in seminaries. The whole purpose was to prepare confessors for the sacrament of penance, in which they had to know what was sinful and the degree of sinfulness. So that was the whole focus of them kind of thing.
0: So a very legalistic, almost. Uh, very legalistic, very, very juridical,
1: very dry, very certain about what things were and weren't.
0: I, I, historically, you, you know this more than I do. It, it, was, it wasn't always this. There was obviously more nuance through you know centuries of theology and maybe not moral theology. Why did it get to this point? I mean, unless it's just strictly for seminary. Well, uh,
1: well, first of all, there was no theology taught outside the seminary. Yeah, that's I mean, a Catholic colleges didn't teach theology; they they taught catechetics.
0: Mm-hmm. I
1: mean, the worst course in Catholic <laughs> colleges was the, was the religion course. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was only in the nineteen late nineteen fifties that a group came together calling themselves the College Catholic the, College Theology Society, whose purpose was to put a more academic aspect to the theology that was taught. Mm. So the seminary was the home of Catholic theology. And even like the Catholic Theological Society of America when I first joined, 99% of the members were priests who taught in seminaries. Mm. That was it. Uh, There were a few Christian brothers. I mean, that, that was it. And what had happened was that these textbooks came in in the 16th century with uh, the Jesuits at the post reformation catholic reform they wanted to renew the sacrament of penance and have more people people go to the they required the council of trent required people had to go to the sacrament of penance once a year but they had to confess sins according to number and species <laughs> now see that's where all this thing came from huh mm-hmm. you had to get the number and the species of the sin kind of thing And and so uh, these manuals started with that understanding, and that's what they continue to do. There had been a little bit in moral theology, but outside of moral theology, there had been some developments, especially in the late 19th century. But then in the early 20th century, Pope Pius X condemned modernism. And modernism was that you were paying too much attention to modern thought. You had to go back to the time-tested true teaching of the past. <laughs> and therefore, they imposed uh, Thomism. But it wasn't good Thomism. It was these lousy manuals right. kind of thing.
0: In a neo, like almost neo-scholastic Thomism. That, that's what it was, right. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you come back to seminary after your doctorate, and— you teach at uh, what is it? The seminary it's called. It's Ber- Saint Bernard's. Ber- Bernard's, and you—they call it the Rock. The Rock. Okay, I—I—I've never been here. I've never like. Why do they call it the Rock?
1: Well, first of all, because it looked like one, <laughs> but secondly, because it was quite conservative and
0: rigid. So they were very like you know like uh, you had to go to bed very early. You know, oh,
1: absolutely. It? Most seminaries did that. You right, know, right. in fact, one night somebody got terribly sick, and they used to shut the lights off at ten o'clock and turn them on at five in the morning. But because somebody was sick, they had to turn the lights on and get a doctor. Half the people got up and went to get a shower, you know.
0: <laughs> How long did you teach there, and what was your experience? The, I taught there for from
1: 1961 until the end of 65, so basically five years. And that, as I say, it was started in 61, so that was before Vatican II. And, I mean, I had the experience of trying to open people up to a new way of teaching. One of them, uh, they used to kid me, and some, seriously, some kidding, that I didn't start teaching from the manual until March 1st. <laughs> and But my, my friend in Rome, my teacher too, was a man named uh, Francis Xavier Murphy. Murphy. Which
0: I freaked out when I read that, because oh, yeah. I know who that is. All right, you
1: know FX. Well, FX was a, was a good friend in many ways. And that before, I went back to Bernard's. He took me out to lunch. He said, look, Charlie, that's a very conservative seminary. You're going to be in trouble. But here's my advice. He said, you speak Latin much better than I do. What you ought to do, you go there and you teach in Latin for the first two months. That's all anybody will know about. And then afterward, you can teach whatever the heck you want. And uh, but the word will be out that you teach in Latin. All the conservatives will love you, kind of thing. And what, the content they don't care about.
0: It, 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 the, so that's what happened. Was the Latin just a? everyone was trying to translate it in a way or in like they got therefore got into the material therefore it, it was no I, I i taught the class of latin <laughs> so it, and passed out latin notes <laughs> oh, that that's a different time <laughs> I, I i could you do that today it's still it's, do you think oh uh, it would take a while <laughs> to do it yeah it would take a while to do it <laughs> i assume as much it, it, it's incredibly difficult if you haven't done it in a while right with going back to Francis X. Murphy, you had the story about your dissertation, right? And especially your dissertation defense. So yeah. I have a lot of friends and colleagues who they tell me about their defense. It's usually you know like they're going and they're sweating bullets. They have to you know discuss in, in detailed ways about their theology. You you kind of sat there for half an hour as two people argued. right? That's so right. <laughs> now,
1: now the interesting thing when I was in Rome, I wound up with two doctorates: one from the Gregorian and one from the Alfonseano.
0: And how did that happen?
1: Well, uh, because I knew all the people who were teaching more of the Greg. And all I needed after I had my licentia was five courses. Okay. And I knew all the people. and uh, But I had read Herring's book in the Italian translation in uh, 58. And I knew he was teaching at the Alfonsianum. So I went over there. And then I was pleased to find there were a lot of... Other courses like uh, you know the moral teaching of the New Testament, of the Hebrew Bible, of the patristics, the uh, psychological aspects. They did a very good job of trying to open up the discipline to include all these different so aspects. So, like new movements,
0: like a, movement, like a that, resource that's model? That's right. That's right. Okay. Mm-hmm.
1: And that after the first semester there, there was an interesting band. Everybody thinks I wrote my dissertation for Herring. I didn't. We, I mean, we, were, we were very friendly, even more so later on. but. I wrote for an Italian named Capone and uh, after my first year there which so I finished it in um, you know June of 1960 and Capone comes to me and he says um, now look uh, we, we are going to get permission at the Alfonsianum to to give Uh, Certified uh, Doctoral degrees Up to that time they couldn't They could only give degrees for their own redemptress. But we're going to get permission to do it This summer And I'd like you to get a doctorate here I said well you know I'm already getting one at the Greg he said well I know that But he said I think it would be a good thing for you And for the uh, Alfonsiana to have one from here And I said well Geez I said you know Why do I need two I've already got it I said, you know, uh, first of all, I said, isn't there a problem here? I thought there's <laughs> something in the statutes that you could only get, you know, you you couldn't get a, a doctorate from two different institutions in the same year. Yeah. yeah. And he was a typical Italian. He said, Ah, chi pensa io? <laughs> Don't worry, I'll take care of it."
0: You know, kind of thing. It's uh, amazing. I mean, your whole academic career, people were saying, "You're going to go here, you're going to do this doctorate. You're gonna go here. <laughs> we want you to do this." Yeah. Like you were immediately grabbed. No,
1: and the other problem was they said, "Look, the, the libraries here are awful. Uh, you can't take <laughs> books out." He said, "I'll give you a topic, and I'll give you any book you want in our library you can take."
0: Did, they know, did anyone else know you had that access?
1: I'm not sure of that.
0: <laughs> I didn't tell anybody. <laughs> I don't know if there was like a roaming librarian who started to see you and notice you and would take you take books and because
1: no, I it was a, I took about twenty five to start with. You know, <laughs> one trip.
0: Right. So you ended up getting two doctorates. Right. And and, not, and now not,
1: that fits in with an old problem that the Germans used to have with Roman doctorates. They had the Latin expression Dr. Romanus Asinus Germanicus. A Roman doctor is a German ass. So I figured I needed two.
0: <laughs> this was all during like 1960 to 65 as the Vatican Council, Second Vatican Council. Right. Did that affect your studies? And like how, the, like, was that an influential part of like what you were doing? Or was it kind of in the background? Or
1: It was more, well, background and more. I mean, interesting, I mean, I already had... Uh, you know, the approach to moral theology, which was so different, which then was accepted in Vatican II. Mm-hmm. But, of course, there were all the shenanigans in Vatican II, you know, kind of thing.
0: Plenty uh, of shenanigans. <laughs> in
1: fact, you know, you mentioned to me when we were chatting here that you heard the talk I gave at St. Edward's back 10 years or so ago. 2007. On John the 23rd.
0: Yep.
1: And, I mean, everybody you know, today thinks John had this great plan and knew, knew everything. Yeah, yeah. And my, my, my argument there, in fact, they just republished it in a new book here too uh, about John the 23rd, uh, that he didn't know. I mean, th- that when I was in the teaching, I was very worried about John the 23rd. I mean,
0: Which is shocking to read, by the way. I, yeah, I, but no right. Really people that.
1: don't expect I mean, he's the one that then came out and said, you had to teach the uh, theology in Latin. And I said to the rector, I said, I already did that. and It didn't work, kind of thing, you know. <laughs> and then he also said that, you know, that uh, there could be, there, those shouldn't, there's no, no one should ever write in favor of the vernacular in the liturgy. Now, this was in 1962 or three. Then later on, I found out that uh, two teachers at the, uh, at the Biblicum, who were very good, had been declared they couldn't teach. And my teacher, Joseph Fuchs, couldn't teach seminarians in Rome. So all of this stuff was going on during the council. I was not happy about what was going on in Rome, to be honest with you. It was only, it, it finally, though, there was, when it finally opened in 62,
0: that the opening talk of John indicated things were going to be different. And if, you, if you read especially a lot of the historians' book on this, you really don't get that picture of John. No, you don't. It. It's, very, it's very different.
1: There was a famous article, and it is famous, in a classical article written by an name Robert Roquette, Roquette was a French Jesuit who was the editor of their great uh, publication, something like America, but a little higher up than America, called Etude Studies. And uh, he had he had been the editor, but he was their correspondent for the whole Vatican Council. And after John the Twenty Third died in 1963 he wrote an article in Etude, and the title of it was Le Mystere Rancoli: The Mystery of Roncalli. And his whole thesis was the French church did not trust Roncalli. Roncalli was the Vatican nuncio to France from in the early 50s, and under him there was this whole repression of what was going on mm. in the French church. Uh, That, for example, Congar was uh, told he he couldn't publish anymore, he couldn't go to ecumenical meetings. The Humani Janus came out in 1950, which was condemning the Nouvelle Théologie that had been associated with the Dominicans in France and with the Jesuits in Lyon. So uh, the French hierarchy didn't trust him at all. They thought he was a conventional, old-fashioned Catholic
0: conservative. Can They give you. You were honored the uh, the papal medal, right? Oh, that's, uh, <laughs> that, that that was a phony. If there ever was, what well, what explain that? I mean, like I have never read anyone getting a papal medal. Oh
1: well, especially at my tender age at <laughs> twenty twenty five, you know, uh, that I uh, I was the what they called the the person who handled the day to day affairs. Of the American College when I was doing my seminary with the Gregorian University, so I used to, you know, bring things back and forth. I mean, I wasn't on the big level; the rector did that kind of stuff. But that I—that I, was my job. And then every year they they give out a medal. I won the silver medal, but they they have just one medal itself. But since I had this job with the biggest college there, oh, I got the medal. <laughs>
0: So it was kind of like a hierarchy of like you were the biggest one and you were the new job. So it kind of, it always went to that student.
1: Well, not always, but, you know, I I knew enough of
0: them and I I knew exactly what happened kind of thing. Did you ever have a conversation with uh, Ron Colley or Pope John the 23rd? No, never a conversation. I shook his hand but kissed his ring or something, but that was it. Did you ever have a class with uh, Bernard Lonegan?
1: Yes, yeah.
0: How, how is having him as a professor? You read a lot of his, his stuff on method and theology, right. and it gets very dense quickly. As a professor, how is he as a professor?
1: I mean, I learned an awful lot from Bernard Lonergan, but he was a lousy teacher, if I may say so. <laughs> uh, that, and, I mean, he, he lectured maybe, there were 200, well, maybe 300 people in the class, yeah. and he lectured to maybe the top 10 kind of thing. And over the heads of everybody. Now he did have a sense of humor. That near the end of the year, of course, the the good thing about even the Greg at the time was, people weren't taking attendance in class. You know, right, right. That right. so that this was you know near the end of the year and people were studying and he came into class one day and looked around. There might have been twenty five people out of three hundred, and he said the prayer and he stands up and he said eight a m and let's also pray for our absent brothers <laughs> <laughs> but he was a genius, don't get me wrong yeah, yeah. Uh, he was not a good
0: teacher were you but, one of the ten that he was speaking to oh you? i don't know i I got half of what he said maybe maybe <laughs> is it is it one of those things where it's because of the language and stuff. He was just kind of doing his own thing and you had to keep
1: up. Yeah. I mean, you know, and basically what they did, and, and the, I mean, this was a European system. They they read what was going to be their next book kind of thing, you
0: know, <laughs> and they just read it to you. So basically you were at a conference and you were just listening, taking notes, and wasn't aware. That was basically, kind of yeah, but with 300 people in Latin. <laughs> and then Herring is, is, was a big influ- influential mentor for you. Herring was a much better teacher. He was, he
1: was, uh. Herring had a first. well he he taught in Latin, but, I mean, it was, again, easy Latin. Lonergan was easy Latin because you could understand right, it, right. people. But Herring was a, a much more of a teacher kind of thing. Right. Uh, and even uh, even a bit on the homiletic side as
0: <laughs> So, and he he kind of helped you gravitate towards moral theology. Is that where you kind of grew love for moral theology? That's
1: where I opened up. Now, Fuchs had started it, you know, yeah, and and, and I, I that was part of the opening up process. I think. Yeah.
0: Okay. And Now, when did I, I try to I try to think about how it, I would phrase this question? When did you start to with this idea of opening up to to see that the stuff you were doing, it, I, didn't, I hate to use this word, it's radical or just progressive, like in terms of like contraceptives and, and things like that. When did that start to really bubble up?
1: Well, I mean, there were it it, it, it started pretty soon. Actually, in the beginning, it wasn't so much about contraception, but it, it, I don't know what what one occasion was. There was a day sponsored by the local college with the three or four priests talking about the liturgy. And it happened to be on All Souls Day. And somebody asked me after my talk, did you, as in their words at the time, say three masses today? I said, mass, mass, mass. I just said three. <laughs> uh, but uh, I said, no. And they said, well, that's terrible because you stand that permission. It was a crazy thing. And, uh, and I said, look, if, if a husband and wife have relations three times a night, does that mean they love one another more
0: than it just once a night? That was my answer, you know, kind of thing. And that caused a few ripples. <laughs> I, I, I think you mentioned this before in some of your writing how some of the problems with moral theology it didn't speak to the rest of the Christian life. That it was, that so, was it. And so in a way, it was less of maybe you you were just doing all these hot-button things that weren't, I guess weren't there at the time or if they were, like they weren't really spoken of. But... This idea of you were trying to make an, a connection to, like, a realistic life of what, what Christians were doing, and,
1: and yes, you tried to make it realistic, but you also tried to tie it in with the rest of theology. Yeah, and that's why they say teaching your first years, and especially the students were, you know, came out of a much very narrow pre-Vatican II thing. We we had this. You just made me think of your earlier question about the the Eucharistic liturgy, and uh, you know, the, it, it was similar to what I said before, but everybody was into these, quote, private masses. You say private yeah, masses. Right. And I said, that makes no sense. You shouldn't do that. I, uh, it makes absolutely no sense. And the students were, I you was know, arguing back. And I said, one, I said, look, if you were at the Last Supper, you know what you would have done? You would have gotten a saw and you would have divided that table up into 12, so you could have 12 masses going on instead of just one. <laughs> now, I mean, it's not very good theology, but it made the point.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. That was like a throwing down the, the gauntlet in some sense. Did you... Did you say individual Masses at all yourself at all? or?
1: No, I used to go out and uh, uh, preside in a convent of sisters. Uh, you know, we had a 6.30 Mass there in the morning kind of thing. And, uh, you know, we were able to incorporate a lot of the new thing. Because really, we see, it was only in 64 that we started using English in the liturgy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: It, one of the issues that it, that it seems that was back with the moral manuals and in the, in the 60s with moral theology is they had this kind of robust understanding of biological teaching that they, they stood on in terms of like how they understood sexual morality as well as ethics in general. And why did, why did the Catholic Church – and, and you know, this is where I have a lack of historical knowledge – such, have such a foundation strictly in this weird scientific realm?
1: Well, uh, I mean, interestingly enough, you can say in its origins it was very good because they were dialoguing with biology. Absolutely, yeah. And you'd like to have theology dialogue with the sciences. The, the problem was it was a, a very old biology, I mean, and the church wasn't the only ones. I mean, I, I found out in my, in my doctoral dissertation there was a, uh, a prize given by a French scientific group that gave a gold medal. To the person who, in human semen, found the Homo Unculus, the little human being <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> under a microscope, The microscopes, were just he found it right there, huh? And, and uh, I mean that was sort of where the, they accepted the whole biology of the time. I mean, even the Latin word for uh, for womb is nidus. It's a, it's a, it's a nest.
0: Nest. Yeah. Well, well, I, I, when I read that, I I kind of like. St- it's thought for, I was like, wait, mm-hmm. what is this getting to? And how does this understand of union and like? Yeah, was... well, you you put the egg, you put the egg in the nest, and it,
1: it comes up.
0: <laughs> they hadn't updated it. They had they stopped. Did they stopped dialogue with the well, well there,
1: there tended to be, but again, the, the science developed very late. I mean, you know, you, you you didn't know the exact time of a woman's ovulation until you know some people eighteen nineties, some people even right, much yeah. later. In fact it was really only in 1930 that there was pretty much agreement as to the
0: fact that a woman was only fertile for four or five days and when it occurred, kind of mm-hmm. thing. So, so, you're teaching at the seminary, and then I'm, I'm assuming you were there till what year? Seminary? 65. 65, and then you joined CUA, or, right? Okay, so you were at CUA when, uh, which is also a very tumultuous couple of years there. When the Humana Vitae came out in 1969, right? 68. Or 68. Was this in the making? Do you know this was coming? Did you explain it kind of how that Humana Vitae, all of a sudden contraceptive, artificial stuff, how that became like it needed to be in a papal document?
1: Well, there's a, obviously a big history behind it, a history for that and my own history. I mean, in the end, the Diocese of Rochester was upset with me because I was arguing the church had changed its teaching on contraception. Catholic University, the dean of theology, had written the bishop of Rochester in 63 asking if I could be released to teach at Catholic U. They said, no, he's too valuable. We can't lose him. By 65, they were ready to get rid of me. So they wrote a letter and said, he's free now. So I, I went there. And when I went there, uh, uh, there was a layperson in Rochester who was my nemesis, and he wrote a letter to every faculty member of the Theology Department at Catholic U, saying, you have now hired this heretic who believes contraception to be changed, et cetera. So from the time I
0: went there in 65, there were- So it was even before? Before okay. Humanae Vitae. Is this the first time you're you're getting Heat and someone uses the H word and like a heretic. Yeah, I mean, uh, and,
1: and then what happened at Catholic U in 1967? I applied for promotion to associate professor. My school passed it unanimously, the Academic Senate passed it unanimously, and that the trustees were meeting in uh, April of 67. And they, who at that time were all, or 25 bishops, all the major cardinals and archbishops and others, and about five, what I call, bag-carrying laymen, they voted not to renew my contract.
0: And then that's when the strike happened.
1: That's when the strike happened.
0: By the way, uh, once again, like, in your... You know people telling you to go doctorate here and there and then all of a sudden you have some a strike where people want to keep you and you have these crowds it's it's absolutely amazing like this idea i mean and the stats are like not losing your job but people fighting for you to keep your job You know, right now i mean
1: you know on the other hand uh there had quite frankly there had been all sorts of problems at catholic U before that and i was just the, the flame that set the fire on, you know, on it but But, I mean, as one medieval historian said, you know, it's the first successful strike at a Catholic university since the 13th century. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I don't know whether it was or not. But what that did then, that put me in a role kind of thing. You see, long before, or the year before Humani Vitae came out. I mean, my good friend Dan McGuire used to say, Charlie, you got a new name. I said, what's my new name? A liberal, thirty-three-year-old Catholic theologian. Oh, okay, because that's what they all said. So, I mean, but that did give me a leadership role, and uh, then the the uh, I mean, there you know there had been a lot of talk about the, the contraception. I was arguing in favor of it. Finally, the. What was called somewhat erroneously the majority and minority report of the Papal Commission came out. It was published by the NCR indicating the majority were in favor of it. And so we were waiting for the encyclical to come out. And then I I got a... I actually was up in Olean, New York, at St. Bonaventure's trying to learn German. Uh, (laughs) And then I got a call from Time magazine on Sunday night saying that the encyclical is going to be released tomorrow kind of thing. So that I, and it indicated things would probably be negative in terms of change. Right. And so I, I made quick arrangements to fly back to Washington And we got a group of my colleagues together at Catholic University on that Monday evening. And a friend of mine who worked for the bishops' conference got me a copy of the document. Now, what's always bothered me in this is people said, we wrote a statement of dissent without ever seeing the document. That's false. We saw the document and had it in our hand. But the interesting thing was, in those days, the Vatican never sent the documents to the bishops ahead of time. Every bishop in the United States never saw the document, but they sent a copy to the Bishop's Conference. And my friend Jim McHugh, who worked for the Bishop's Conference, brought us a copy of that at 7 o'clock on that Monday <laughs> night, kind of thing. So we put together the statement, issued it, had a press conference the next morning, and that indicated that one could be a good Catholic and dissent in theory and in practice from this specific teaching of an encyclical. And then that sparked this
0: huge debate after. Kind that. of the, well, it's kind of, and then all of a sudden, this image of you and going against it. And With Humanivite, and, and do you ever felt like you wanted to just not walk away or just let it go, but like, do you feel like you had to like take on this leadership role to not go against it, but to continue to update the church and, and to, because a lot of people, you know, are afraid of their jobs or were afraid, like, with a lot of tension involved. Do you ever have that feeling when you were like, maybe I should, pullback
1: or- well no i i, I really did now maybe since you know since people have gone on strike to save my job the year before you know maybe <laughs> it's that, that's a good right? sign you know <laughs> but no i just felt we had to say something for the sake
0: of the good of the church uh, did you feel like the, there was a place for dissent at the time oh absolutely in
1: fact we ultimately proved to the bishops there was uh, the old manuals those old manuals i talked about they were in the systematic theology dogmatic theology but they always admitted in the fine print that that uh, non-infallible teaching could be wrong i remember about two weeks after it, i ran into a uh, a bishop who i well i'll tell you his name george r was the bishop of trenton and george r had taught a dogmatic theology at the seminary in Newark. And I ran into him on the street in Washington. I said, oh, Bishop, you're probably not happy with what, what you know, I did. He said, what do you mean, Charlie? He said, I taught that. I know there's a possibility of dissent in the church. Oh. Amazing.
0: That's, that's, uh, not, that's not how they sing today. That, that's <laughs> right. No, they changed entirely.
1: The good old George R. to his credit, said. But, but so we, we did, you know, and, and, and because we had given all our documentation on this mm-hmm. and I got a, a big help from an article that Joe Kamanchek who later became my colleague at Catholic U had written on the whole history of this question justifying dissent. dissent and we presented that to the American bishops we had a couple of private meetings with them so they knew And when they finally came out with their document on humani Vitae, human life in our day in November of 68, the encyclical came out at the end of July. In their document, they admitted that theological dissent could be legitimate under three conditions, that there was no scandal given, that there was respect for the teaching authority of the church, and that reasons were proposed. And I said,
0: we did that. Would they disagree on the respects to towards the— Well, I
1: mean, you know, I, I, even there, I mean, we, we did not denigrate the—you
0: right. the, uh, know, I mean— I, I just I bring that up because of what happened with Ratzinger later in terms of public dissent. Right, 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 So that kind of comes up.
1: Oh, no, they, it keeps coming. But interesting enough, you see, you had a, a, a going backward from the American bishops. In 1968, they accepted public dissent. And, in fact, when they finally— Vatican said, I could no longer be a Catholic theologian, the the correspondent for the Catholic News Service, who actually I had taught, uh, <laughs> raised the Archbishop Hickey in Washington. He said, well, what about this statement that the bishops made in, in 68? And Hickey said, that no longer holds.
0: <laughs> Let's start with the, the meeting with the Cardinal Ratzinger in the, in the CDF. Wow. Explain that. I need to hear that story. It's well,
1: like- basically— in 1979, they informed me
0: that I was under investigation, and then that for the next seven years it, it was, was like a it back was
1: and back forth. and forth with letters back and forth, and then finally maybe around 63. I mean, if you've read my stuff, you know more about it than I do today. <laughs> but I got a letter from them saying, you know, yeah, yeah, this is this is not the exact words, but the basic message was: this is your last chance to change position kind of thing
0: so it was it was less a dialogue and more of
1: a right in the end it was sort of a dialogue of the of the deaf kind of thing that it's, but then they i, I, I was talking cardinal bernardine was the chancellor of catholic university cardinal hickey was the, i'm sorry hickey was the chancellor and bernardine was the chair of the board so i met a couple of times with them and uh I had said I'd even work out a compromise. I wouldn't teach uh, uh, moral. I wouldn't teach sexual ethics anymore. Right. But I wouldn't it's, retract my position. I wouldn't teach it anymore. And uh, uh, Bernadine was was you know willing to push that, and I'm sure Hickey was that much. But anyhow, they finally said, well that the congregation would be willing to talk to you, but it would not be an official part of the process. But if you came to Rome, they would talk with you. So I said, sure, I'll go. And my friend George Higgins, a couple of people accompanied me over. And so I, we spent, I spent two hours with, with Ratzinger, and Herring came with me. And
0: uh, This was like multiple languages too, right? Yeah, multiple <laughs> languages, right, right.
1: And I must say, I mean, Ratzinger was on the whole was very uh, polite. He was uh, very respectful, even, kind of thing. But it was a dialogue of the deaf. I mean, I made my points, yes. you know. And there were two rather uh, mo- moments where, where there was more tension. And the, the, the one was I said to him, look, you are a good German theologian. You know what German moralists are saying. And I mentioned four or five names and said, I'm saying the same thing that they're saying. And then he sort of bristled a bit and he said, well, are you asking me to open investigation of that? <laughs> that and which
0: Did he understand what you said? Yeah, like... Yes, he did on that one.
1: I mean, <laughs> uh, that uh, he, he would not speak in English and my, I did not speak in German. Mm-hmm. I used English, Latin, Italian. He used uh, Latin, Italian mostly kind of thing. And uh, then, and basically, looked at him. And I said, huh, "I am not going to be a part of doing that kind of thing, you know, re- right. reporting on somebody." And the only other time that there was tension, his uh, number two person in the in the congregation was an archbishop who later became a cardinal, Alberto Bovone. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, I mean, it was it, Bovone was there and said nothing. And then fi- finally, uh, Ratzinger Singer said, "Well." Now you know this is also this uh, question of dissent also has canonical aspects and repercussions and the Archbishop Bovone here is an expert canon lawyer and I'd like him to talk to you about the canon law thing. And Bovone went along and said, you know, I mean, it's like me. He says, if I disagree with the cardinal and dissent from him, you know, I, I I should uh, I, I should give up this job. I should go back and just become a parish priest. And I said to him, I said, that's the trouble with you people. You think the lowest job you can have is a parish priest. Then Ratzinger said to me, "You misunderstood him." I said, "I did not misunderstand him," and you know, I did not misunderstand. him. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
0: the ironic thing is, you you wanted to be a parish that's priest, right. and they right. got you to be a theologian. Right. Yeah. And they, I found it to be so a, it's, life. It's like hey, this is what you, I, I was just going to be a parish priest, and right. now you you created you know this. So, to not get too lost in the details, but to kind of bring it to today the whole thing with Elizabeth Johnson and, and kind of it's still happening where theologians are kind of being silenced to a degree and all this is, do you think there's any room for dissent today or it, does it have still importance? And, and would you have any advice, any the, theologians out there who you've know you you've been at it for years now? I mean, oh, I, I think there has
1: to be. I mean, that's the only way theology grows. I mean the, we, we have seen historically there have been so many church teachings that have changed. Now the, the the real problem is that the the Catholic Church has been almost always unwilling to admit that its teachings were erroneous. Quite frankly, even Vatican II could not do that. When you got into the religious liberty question, where we had taught one thing in the and nineteenth century, and it kept teaching it right up to nineteen sixty five, that the the answer was. Well, historical circumstances changed. We were right in the 19th century and right again in the 20th century. Well, somewhere in there we had to be wrong. You can't go from certitude to certitude kind of thing. And so, I mean, I think... Obviously, we have to continue to do it. I mean, Beth is a good friend of mine, and Beth always said, I've never disagreed with any teaching of the church. <laughs>
0: right. It's interesting that she was uh, one of your cohorts in the 80s, and all of a sudden, recently, in like, you know, five years, well, I believe three or five years ago, is when she went through kind of the... the right, but one.
1: actually, but fr- I mean, Beth's a very good friend, don't get me wrong. Mar- Margaret Farley went through a greater problem. Uh, okay, Beth okay, yeah, was never condemned by Rome. No, It was done by the American bishops whereas Margaret Farley had over her head for five years this back-and-forth
0: correspondent wondering what they were going to do kind of thing. So that's a much bigger cloud to have. Does it matter to you that 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 happened where you are no longer considered by the Vatican or the CDF to be a Catholic theologian? You know, as a theologian yourself who was loyal and devoted, part of the academy, I mean, in a sense, you know, how did you take that? Well,
1: obviously, I I, I wasn't happy about it. I... Uh, but well, maybe the best thing there was there was a cartoon in some daily paper, right after '86 thing, and it was, there were two things there. And the first, thing, you know, the Pope was saying, "What's that American theologian doing?" I condemn. And the next one, is me with 35 microphones in front of me. You know, uh, I mean, let's face it; it gave me uh, the opportunity that I never would have had before. Right. You know, I mean, I'm realistic enough to know that, mm. and. Uh, but then I think it was up to me to responsibly try to take care of it. Mm-hmm. Now, then, and it's it's also affected me, I think, in this way. We, anybody doing theology is always going to be in dialogue with the times. I mean, you have to be. And, and that's the only way to do it. And But interesting, now that my age, and, and I reflect back on what I have done, I determined that I would stay... In the area of Catholic moral theology, I mean, I had read the Protestant theology very much. My good friend Jim Gustafson, who taught at Yale and is looked upon as the, you know, the 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 foremost Christian ethicist in the United States in the latter part of the 20th century, he called me an ecumenical theologian par excellence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> but but the but the fact was. I felt then that I had to stay in the area of moral theology, not just dealing with the area of dissent, but with all these other aspects that come up kind of thing and and, and dealing with all of these other issues. In fact, in this recent book I put together, well, it's not really a book. I, uh, when we, back in the, in the 60s and most of the 70s, you know, there weren't, first of all, there weren't many moral theologians, about three of us writing kind of <laughs> right. thing. And we never had time to write uh, monographs, so we wrote articles and put them together as books. One of my early doctoral students said to me, he "said Charlie, I've written read everything you've written, the two books and the eight non-books. Those were the books of essays. Well, this last thing I published, the book of essays, but uh, so what goes around comes around. But, but, it, but I mean, interesting interestingly, here I, I I try to point out." Uh, you know, my own failures that I never gave enough attention to racism in this country, that I was maybe too involved in these other issues but I'm wrong for not having done it. I failed to admit the the reality of white privilege and what that has brought about and, uh, that, you know, and so in other words, I mean, moral theology has to consider all these aspects and maybe I got too much involved in
0: just dealing with
1: these internal church problems and not enough dealing with some of the other questions that came along.
0: Right. How would you summarize the heart of your moral theology? Now, I mean, you've been teaching it for years and years and you've, you've seen a lot and you've done a lot. Have you thought a lot about kind of what is that the, as a teacher, as an academic, kind of a thesis of your moral theology?
1: Well, I mean, it's it's hard to uh, describe it so briefly. Let me say, what what the primary thing that's happened in these 55-plus years is that moral theology has become much more academic than it was. Mm-hmm. And people say to me today, often people will say, you know, where are the theologians? I mean, at Vatican II, my good friend Tom Fox at the National Catholic Reporter said, Charlie, you know, I knew all the th- the major theologians 40 years ago. I don't know those people today. And I said, that's right, Tom. There aren't such people. But it's a good thing there aren't such people. Because today we have so many more people who are so much better prepared academically, who are dealing with so many different issues in depth. There, it will be impossible for any one people to dominate. To, to dominate. And that's a good thing.
0: Do you, do you think the way theology was done just by mostly male clerics versus now like a lot of lay theologians? Sure. what do you think the, some of the differences in character? Oh,
1: I mean, it had to be. I mean, first of all, the academic aspect, but then just the whole of, uh, of recognizing the experience of life. My good friend from Boston College, you might have had her in class, Lisa Cahill. I, I did not have
0: her class, but a lot of people talked about
1: her. Lisa was uh, originally heavily into bioethics,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, she got a degree out of Chicago. She wrote a dissertation for Jim Gustafson, whom I mentioned before, and she's tended to be you know, much more ecumenical because of that, but she always said she was concentrating in bioethics, but because she was the only married woman teaching moral theology. She was forced into sexual ethics, you know, I mean. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, what you're needed. Right. right, that's right. And and again, you respond to the needs of the times. But, I mean, you know, I, I put it this way, I, I also think one very significant change was that, that before Vatican II, and even a little bit of Vatican II, you still had this was the one the- theology which was universal for everybody. Mm-hmm. And what has developed since then, that everybody is perspectival. We look at it from our perspectives. Mm -hmm. And what we have tended to forget especially was the margins, the poor, the women, the oppressed. And that is what has happened in the last 25 years, that we have become much more conscious of the margins and that theology has to be done from the margins.
0: Do you think uh, Francis is helping out with that a lot? I think Francis is a
1: big help. I uh, frankly, I don't think Francis is going to change any of the existing <laughs> Welcome, welcome and, to the club. And moral theology, and and I've said that. I say it in this book, right? But I mean, he has changed the the whole style of the papacy. He has changed the priorities, kind of thing. I mean, you know the uh, you know your field hospital. You, you know, if somebody is you know, is, is terminally ill, you know, don't ask them about their uh, you know, cholesterol or something. And that even in moral theology, he's changed the pastoral thing entirely. In other words, he's brought up this pastoral aspect that said, you take people where they are, you know, and you accept them where they are and you try to have them move along. Actually, Herring was saying this years and years ago, and the principle of gradualism. gradualism. A- and, uh, and then he's also opened the, I mean, he he certainly has opened the door for theology to move in and change things. That that uh, in his encyclical Laudato Si, one of the great things there, which you would never saw before an encyclical, there are about 20 times he quotes local bishops' conferences. He wants theology coming from below. below. And that's what he's doing. Now, he also has to change the courier around, but I, I think, you know, the door is opening here. Now, he's in a tough bind, too, let's face it. Uh, Especially that,
0: the, the global south, right? Like, he has to kind of hold everything together. Right,
1: but also he's got to, uh, you know, fend off the, uh, the old-timers, in a sense. I mean, his cardinal secretary of state gave a talk, I don't know, three weeks, four weeks ago, and said, the pope is a marvelous pastoral theologian. He is excellent in the pastoral world. Of course, he's no theologian. Well, that's telling Francis, don't you
0: go into theology kinds of stuff, you know? I and mean, he's got <laughs> some problems there that he's got to deal with. The American church and maybe the Western church is very polarized in a way. Like, is there? Do you think, that, I mean, beyond Francis, is, is there a way to bring the two groups together? Is there a solution there?
1: I don't know. I I wish there was. I mean, frankly, I'm identified very much with the left wing of the Catholic Church. The reality is, I mean, I worry my theology isn't radical enough, to be perfectly frank. I mean, if I, that's my self-examination kind of thing. I mean, I'm an old Catholic both-and person, you know, right, right, right. Uh, and, and that's something of the best of the Catholic tradition. That And if, in fact, even at the time of, uh, of Humanae Vitae and the time of my problem of the Vatican, uh, one of my students gave me a beautiful uh, needlepoint that quoted the old saying, in nature unitas, in dubis libertas, in omnibus caritas, in necessary things unity, in doubtful things freedom, in all things charity. And I think that's what we got to try to do. Now, my worry is that that, we're facing the same problem that politicians are facing. The, uh, yeah. in, in the old days, you had party unity, you know, and people had a commitment to the party, which was stronger than their commitment to a particular position. Right now, it's the other way around, and, and I'm afraid that we've lost that sense that we do belong to a community and that we got to be willing to listen to other people in the community, even those we disagree with. But but it, because of the ethos that we're living in that's very hard to do because everything is, I'm right and I'm right, and the two will never come together. Well, uh, that so was- it's, it's the influence of Mr. Trump on Catholic theology. <laughs> no, okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, you, you speak about this idea, not only do you need courage, but you need wisdom. That you need both. And, exactly. and I think the the hard part is the wisdom part. It's the I mean, wisdom part, and, exactly. And perhaps that's something we should all strive for, and we can end on that. Rapid fire questions. These are fun, and it, it, feel free just to like. They're not supposed to be serious, and it's not like the, what we said before was serious. But the first thing we always start off with is, "What is your favorite or least favorite liturgical song?" And you've seen it all. So. All right, my my least favorite was and is
1: to a certain extent "Amazing Grace," and when my mother died, uh, the, that my mother died in '85, and uh, that my mother and after in a older age had started working at the campaign for human development in Rochester and she got all these young friends. You know, it was great. My father was dead. She was going to all these meetings. She didn't drive. They picked her up and she had all these sort of young liberal Catholic friends and just off the storyline, but uh, somebody made the remark, well, you know, if they wanted to get all the liberals and the Caius of the Rochester, they should have bombed St. Ambrose Church yesterday. And, of course, most people would say it was because of Charlie, but we know it was because of Gertrude. <laughs> but anyway, this nun wanted to sing Amazing Grace, and I said, absolutely not, unless you can't say saved a wretch like me. I am not a wretch. God loves us, and God saved us, and don't go giving me any of that
0: wretch crap. <laughs> So look, look at the Thomism just coming out of you. That's right. That's right. God made me good. Next question: What profession would you have attempted or like to attempt if you didn't choose the priesthood or academia?
1: I'm very happy in
0: academia.
1: I mean, and that's most of my identity, frankly. That I mean, I am so privileged, and most of us in academia are. You know, you you do what you love to do. I mean, to read, to have thoughts, to. To all of a sudden have that eureka moment when things come together, and then when you teach that to students, and every once in a while you see in their eyes it's coming kind of thing, <laughs> you know. I mean, it's it's a it's a magnificent vocation, and that you 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 couldn't ask for a better one. You, you know, I mean, people much younger than I, I know in the business world, say I can't wait to get the hell out of here kind of thing. You know. Right most of the people in the academy we probably stayed too long (laughs) and you know that that's a bit of a problem we got to think about not only for our sake but for the sake of the younger people coming along because one of the problems we face is younger phds are not getting jobs and our universities, all of them, are taking advantage of it by having so many adjunct
0: professors. The adjunct world.
1: It's horrible.
0: But I mean, it it sounds like you've had such a fruitful experience with your career that even something else of like, what else you would do is not even in the picture. It's not in the picture. What team are you on? Are you on Team Bow Tie or Team Necktie? What is what do you gravitate towards? Oh, uh,
1: neither, but necktie,
0: brother, bow tie. <laughs> I, I, I this question I, I ask it to a lot of professors. No one wants to wear a tie anymore, right, which is fine. Right, like it's, right, <laughs> right. You're sitting here, I, mean, I uh, in, in in fact,
1: uh, Sunday, uh, I go. There's a local. local I don't uh, I don't preside at the local. Liturgy here at nine o'clock, but there was a wedding afterward I was going to, and these are rather formal people, so I put on this suit and tie, and all my friends say, "Charlie, what the hell are you
0: doing with that?" Kind of you know. Never seen you with one. <laughs> <laughs> Unrecognizable, man. Yeah. So I, I, I always end not Steve oakey my colleague. I always end with, what should the title of your biography be? But you kind of already have this book about loyal descent. Mm-hmm. So I'll ask one of Steve's questions. If you were to be the patron saint, what would you be the patron saint of?
1: Well, first of all, I wouldn't be a patron saint. But, uh, you know, I, I think I, I like it to be a theologian's because that's what— uh, you know, that's what I've tried to spend my life doing. That's what I find fulfilling. And and I think it's an important role for the life of the church and for the life of society. You know, as my friend David Tracy always said, you know, theologians have a threefold public, uh, uh, the church, the academy, and society. And, I mean, it's to try to respond to all of those roles. I mean, one one of the dangers, frankly, is Especially, and I'm a part of it, we speak only to ourselves. Can, so. uh, the, the, the great thing about uh, Francis is he speaks to the world. I mean, and that has come through in the sense of the number of secular publications that have paid great attention to Gaudato C. I mean, when you have articles in the New Republic, two long articles in the New York Review of Books, The the Guardian, The Economist, I mean, all of these people are interested in what he's saying. And I think that's great.
0: Well, come a long way from seeing you in 2007. Now I got to do a face-to-face interview. This is amazing. Thank you so much for uh, being on the podcast, and uh, it's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you, Mike. I enjoyed
0: it. Thanks much.
1: The Daily Theology Podcast is produced bi-weekly by dailytheology.org.
0: Daily Theology is a Catholic blog that pursues faith-seeking understanding in everyday life.
1: You can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.